0: With seasonal produce, premium proteins, and organic ingredients you can trust, Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well. And now you can go to greenchef.com slash curb135 and use code curb135 to get $135 off across five boxes, and your first box ships free. That is greenchef.com slash curb135 and use code curb135 to get $135 off across five boxes, and your first box ships free. That's Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well.
1: Welcome back to the Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Otto, feeling a little a little uh, out of sorts because Paul Williams is not here tonight, but I do have a fantastic co-host who I will introduce in a second. On tonight's show, we're going to talk about meningitis with a great guest, Dr. Pyle Patel. And now here with me, Returning co-host, uh, producer extraordinaire, I guess music producer extraordinaire, and famous Kelly Clarkson fan is the great Dr. Moni Gotmoney Amin. Moni, thanks for coming back, and, and how have you been? I've been fantastic. Thanks for asking, and how have you been? I've been great. We got After your last appearance on the show, a lot of people wanted to hear your mashup, so I'll probably have to put it in these show notes again, too, and uh, hopefully they don't take it down off of YouTube, but... Uh, Really, uh, really happy to have you back. And before you tell the audience about our guest and our uh, what we talk about on the show, a little bit of the, a teaser, can you can you tell them what is it that we do on The Curbsiders? Sure, we are the
2: internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. We have a great conversation tonight with our guest, Dr. Payal Patel. She is an infectious disease doctor at the University of Michigan and Ann Arbor VA healthcare system. She completed fellowship in infectious diseases at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School. She also completed a Master of Public Health from the Harvard School of Public Health. She is passionate about antimicrobial stewardship and teaches and mentors medical students, residents, and fellows. She consults for the CDC on global antimicrobial stewardship and has worked on building antimicrobial stewardship programs in India, Italy, and Japan. And this is really cool. She is currently a voting member of the Presidential Advisory Council on Combating Antibiotic Resistance. So Dr. Paya Patel teaches us some great stuff tonight. The first and most important is if you're thinking LP, you should LP. And then she really breaks down how to kind of triage how to go through diagnostics and treatment for patients that have meningitis. So it's a great conversation.
1: Yeah, a lot of very specific and actionable pearls on the on the episode. I found it very helpful. And, Moni, before we get onto it, uh, did you did you have a pun?
2: You know, I, I think I did. Uh, and we're going back to my roots of music. And so, unlike Def Leppard tonight, we are bringing on the headache, not the heartache. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME through VCU health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Well, Pyle, we've been talking for a little while here and the audience, we got to bring them in at some point. So tell them a little bit about yourself and and tell them about some hobby or interest you have outside of medicine. Of course, they've heard your full bio, but tell them, you know, get it. They want to know you personally.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, so I grew up in Houston, Texas, and I would say I'm a Tex-Mex aficionado. And so during the <laughs> pandemic, I have like made every type of salsa that exists, and I am a salsa expert as well as an infectious disease doc.
1: As you should So be. impressive. <laughs> <laughs> For the audience, the reason that uh, Moni and Pyle are friends happens to do with food, and I believe, what was the pizza topping, Moni? This is going to be controversial for people, but jalapeno, pineapple.
2: <laughs> yes, yes, people, pineapple, spicy and sweet, delicious.
3: Exactly. We are <laughs> pro-jalapeno pineapple people.
1: I am not going uh, to judge anything, and uh, Monique, I'll let you take it where you want to from here with the line of questioning.
2: Uh, you know, along the lines of things that you like, Tex-Mex being one of them, do you recommend anything you've seen like TV or movie of late uh, that brings you the yeah. kind of joy that Tex-Mex does? Uh,
3: yeah, actually, yeah, there's um it's actually a book and now a show. So I remember my last flight before the pandemic, I'd gotten on the flight and I picked up a book called The Flight Attendant. Um, and the, the book was excellent. It was, it was really great and i really loved it and then months later i had no idea they were turning it into a show and the show itself has like really taken the book to another level so if you're someone who you know likes reading um and likes seeing that put on screen i have really enjoyed the flight attendant the book as well as the series it
2: is so that good that is a good recommendation I, I talk about it with everybody that will listen it is so good it's <laughs> awesome <laughs>
1: By the way, Moni, I have to mention this because yesterday I was driving in my local area and I saw that Kelly Clarkson now has some sort of daytime talk show. So I was I was thinking uh, that I would have to bring this up with you,
2: (laughs) Matt. This show has been on the air for three seasons now, and you are just now learning it. Uh, I'm very sad (laughs) for you. Uh, And the highlight of well, I guess the billboard
1: advertising is working.
2: Yeah. She's about to take over Ellen's time slot since it's going off the air. So, um, ah. like literally they're putting her show in the time slot. So that's probably why. And just for people to know, she sings a cover of a song at the start of every episode and that's what makes it unique and fantastic. The end. Okay.
1: All right. Well, maybe we'll get a separate pick of the week from you. But I have one more question for Pyle before Pyle, Do you have any like favorite advice or feedback that you've received? It could be recently. It could be any time during your career. Um, just some favorite advice that's that comes to mind.
3: Yeah, I, you know, my piece of advice is actually related to the topic that we're we're going to be talking about today: meningitis. And it's something that an ID attending told me when I was a resident, and I now pass on to my teams. And that is. If you're even considering an LP, there's a little voice inside of you wondering if you need to do an LP on a patient. The answer is probably yes. And the reason is if the LP is positive, that's actually very helpful and it might direct your therapy. But also if it's negative, it's actually also helpful because usually the patient who is getting an LP is on multiple antibiotics, sometimes multiple antivirals. And so the positive or negative LP can both be very helpful. So at the end of the day, if you're thinking about getting an LP, you should get the LP.
1: Yeah, and I love deprescribing. So I'd be happy for a negative LP if I get to deprescribe. Before we read you a case, Moni, I just wanted to give you a chance to, uh, did you have a pick of the week that you wanted to share with the audience because your your previous picks of the week have been such tremendous hits? Uh, okay, yeah. So, so, so I'm sorry
2: to disappoint the fans, but um, this one's not Kelly Clarkson related in <laughs> any way. But it does involve a pop queen. So uh, one of my favorite podcasts is called Switched on Pop. It's definitely been helping me through these like kind of darker news days that we've been having. And they recently did a four-part series called Listening to Britney. And it's not your standard free Britney content. It is they break down the four sort of landmark songs in her career and kind of talk through the evolution of how her sound changed and how producers changed the way they produced her voice from like a lot of character and personality on her first album. And then you get to that last album that came out like around her first sort of demise if you will and it's just really interesting and fun and they're super nerdy about it and i love it so switched on pop listening to britney highly recommend
1: another great recommendation by mooney i i'm actually curious about this one because you from what you were telling me off air a little bit it sounds very interesting this episode is brought to you by indeed And curbsiders, you've heard us talk about Indeed before. That's because we've used Indeed and we were so pleased with the quality and number of applicants that we got. And it made it easy to organize them right there on their platform because Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. That's right. You spend hours on other job sites searching for candidates, but with Indeed, it's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. And with Indeed Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data US. And Indeed's doing something no other job site has done. Now, with Indeed, businesses only pay for quality applications matching the sponsored job description. So visit Indeed.com internalmedicine Internal Medicine to start hiring now. Just go to Indeed.com internalmedicine Internal Medicine. Indeed.com internalmedicine Internal Medicine. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You know, it's time for a case from Lack. So let's hear about, uh, I believe it's Miss Hudson here.
2: Yeah, Miss Hudson, somebody very similar to someone I saw uh, when I was on procedure service a few weeks ago. She's 41. She has a history of hypertension. And her friend brings her in with a couple hours of fever, neck stiffness, and altered mental status. When she gets to you, she's febrile, tachycardic, but normotensive. And her exam's notable that she's a little drowsy, but she is alert and oriented, and she has a positive Brudzinski sign. And her labs are notable for an elevated white blood cell count and a creatinine of 1.5 with a baseline of 1. So I think at this point, are there any things on the case that you want to know, like history and physical-wise, that are helping you make your differential um, for Ms. Hudson?
3: Yeah, definitely. So... I think you know this is this is a really key part of the history, and and this this patient is really lucky because a friend brought them in. Um, and so, one thing that I would say I've you know learned from seeing some of these patients in the past, and I think it's really important to think about right at this moment when you're admitting this person, seeing them for the first time, is trying to determine if meningitis is on your differential if this could be meningitis or could this be meningoencephalitis? And there are some really key things on exam that the patient may not be able to tell you, but their family member or someone that they live with may be able to tell you. And that really drive your concern one way or the other. So I would be asking the friend, Okay, you know her well. Do you feel like her personality is, is, is different today than maybe like how she usually is? And another really concerning thing would be if they said, this person has been sleeping for two days. Remember, like decreased level of consciousness. That's what we learn in med school or, you know, that's what the test question is. But in reality, what do you see is someone who's like, man, like I've just been sleeping or my partner has been sleeping for three days and then they also have these symptoms. That becomes really concerning for an encephalitic picture along with meningitis. So that would be kind of the ding, ding, ding things that I would be asking her friend.
1: Yeah, those things always scare me, and uh, I I always pray that the answer is no to the you know no sleepiness, no no like change in personality. The, this in general, this whole topic scares me. That's why that's why I thought it was a good idea for a show.
3: <laughs> yes, it is. It is really scary, and I think you know that it's been around for so long. But I think that. There are there's a lot of takeaways, and hopefully we'll hit you know some of them today. But the first one that I think a, like a lot of people forget about is again like just trying to determine meningitis versus, versus meningoencephalitis, and that's when the brain is involved, and that's when you start seeing some of these you know personality changes, decreased level of consciousness, perhaps coma if it's you know if it's get, get,
1: getting too late. Yeah and cuz with bacterial meningitis i mean altered mental status can be part of it um is that are you calling that something different than like is it is that bacterial meningoencephalitis or do you just kind of you you yeah. separate that out a little bit i know bit? it's
3: kind of hard you know i do think that like with you know they'll say like irritation right so like irritation is part of it and then like usually the altered mental status might be a little bit of confusion but with the florid encephalitis people might be doing things that are almost thought to be psychotic, right? Like just mm-hmm. completely out of character for that person and then p- paired with this like intense sleeping. And so that, those two are really, those should scare someone into really widening that differential and rushing that that
1: workup for things that could cause encephalitis as well. Great, that's really helpful. What's, what's next, Monique?
2: Now that meningitis and encephalitis have entered my mind, this causes immediate (laughs) uh, mental hyperventilation uh, because there are so many things (laughs) that are running through my mind. So there's, you know, there's the, I need to start antibiotics probably. Um, There's, do I LP? Do I not LP? Do I get a CT? And then after all those things, do I send the entire kitchen sink off or do I not? So let's just kind of start back with antibiotics and then the LP part. And then we can go from there.
3: Yeah, love it. Love it. Okay. So I think this like totally agree. I think order of things and timing of things with meningitis can be tricky and like hard for like to remember what to do first. So I would say, you know, at the end of the day, the most important thing is if it's bacterial meningitis, of course, right, you've got to get antibiotics into that patient, right? And, you know, remember your your favorite id doctor on your shoulder saying did you get blood cultures before you got those antibiotics right and the reason that those blood cultures are particularly important in meningitis is that like about 50% of people may have a bacteremia with their bacterial meningitis and so that means that you could get that culture yield really quickly right it could alter your duration of therapy so I would say very, very key early on, if you can get the blood cultures before you start antibiotics, that would be really helpful. And getting antibiotics started is really helpful. So that that is really key. Now thinking about the LP. The LP timing is important, right? And CT, you know, we've I think we've all learned in our lives, like, you know, gotta get a CT before LP but there's been studies that show that like you know we we probably do way too many CTs and that they delay getting the LP doing all of the other really important stuff so what like the IDSA, the Infectious Disease Society of America, and some other guidelines say is that if there is some concern for like mass effect, if they have some risk factors, which include things like immune compromise for having something that could potentially – you absolutely need to get a CT – those few things are – and, they, you know, you can find those on UpToDate or, or the IDSA guidelines. You know, those few things would make you get a CT. But most people who are presenting, including this patient that we have in front of us, you don't have to delay the LP to get that CT. So that's really important to remember. And then the other thing to remember is, again, I said that, you know, getting those blood cultures and then antibiotics, that's really important because I know I remember myself being in that role, being like, oh my gosh, I have to get an LP. I have to get an INR. I have to see like, how long is this going to take? That's why I don't want, you know, most people to, and I would say most ID doctors would say, you don't want to delay the antibiotics to figure out the logistics of the LP. It does have to happen. Um, But the LP is important to happen soon because again, antibiotics can change your yield of what you're going to be seeing on that LP. It it pains me when I get consulted and like on the fifth day, right, like this person is like being empirically treated for bacterial meningitis and they still haven't gotten an LP. And I'm like, every hour I see this, like this culture result being less helpful. So that's kind of how I think about, you know, all of those first things that need to be ordered.
1: Yeah, and we'll probably we'll probably have when we talk about treatment later we might have to squeeze you on like what do you do when you you know when the LP was was delayed and they were on antibiotics and you're you're chasing your tail a little bit but that of course that in real life that happens more often than I than I wish it would. So, um it sounds like right now though you're saying blood cultures those should be easier to get when you get the initial labs and then Antibiotics should be started soon, and if there's going to be a delay, and the, the LP should be probably the LP should probably come as soon as possible. Yeah, um, maybe it comes after the antibiotics, but hopefully not by too much. Yeah, and the CT we're probably over CTing people, and, uh, and and really immunocompromised or people where we're really suspicious for mass effect. Those are the people that really need it.
3: Yeah, but, and you you might be able to even see on you know physical exam like you know. Or or maybe your ER colleagues have helped out and told you you know this person has papilledema this person has you know or you you're doing your exam and you see a focal deficit a focal neuro deficit that's weird right that's that's abnormal again raising my concern for something like encephalitis something going on in the brain that you're on your physical exam could alter your pretest probability and if you see something like that I think then it totally makes sense to get a CT.
1: Yeah. Great.
2: Okay. So Pyle, I've done the LP and I was panicked through the entire thing, but I got it. I got the fluid. And I'm always curious about your expert opinion about, do I send every single test I can order? Because there's a lot of them and I feel (laughs) like I don't always know if sending West Nile on every patient is
3: a good plan totally yeah and so that's a great question and i think so the way i think about this as someone who does you know internal medicine and infectious disease is um okay when you do the lp if you can get it i know it can be really difficult but if you can get more fluid than you need right that that's really helpful from an id perspective and not just in meningitis but really for many of the patients that i see when i write a consult note And when I teach, I often say there's the first shelf of stuff that we're going to do like today, right now, and then there's the top shelf stuff that I'm going to keep in my back pocket and we're going to order that like if we need to. And meningitis is is such a great example of that first shelf stuff that we're going to order like cell count from the CSF, protein, glucose, the culture, you know, the basics, That stuff is so incredibly helpful and will help you determine later on if we're going to have to send stuff like molecular diagnostics west nile right like all of that other stuff that belongs on that top shelf so i would say if you can't get as much csf if you as you can i i usually call the lab and tell them to hold some of the csf and then there's like that third shelf where we you know if we really can't figure out we might need to do something like universal pcr some of that crazy stuff so that's how i think about it so what are those first what is that first line that you send off yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I used I used to, I feel you on being like nervous about this. I used to write it down like on a piece of paper so that, you know, I would always have it in front of me because I was always so scared I was going to forget, you know, to send off like the serum, you know, because you got to send off the serum protein and all that stuff at the same time. So, I think, you know, the the bare minimum that I want to see when I when I'm consulted on someone who who might have suspected meningitis, is the cell count and diff. Now that is that's that is money right there. That is gonna help me so much. So cell count and diff, that's the most important thing. Definitely a culture gram stain, right? That's this that's both equally important. To me, it could end there and I wouldn't be mad at you. Okay. <laughs> if you get the <laughs> glucose and protein, I'll be even happier. But those first two are really, really,
1: really important to
3: us in infectious
1: disease. And the and you mentioned the serum as well. So serum, uh, you're you're comparing the serum glucose to the CSF glucose, and same with the protein, exactly. And um, and and you mentioned the panel testing. I, for my reading, it, it seemed like the panel testing sometimes it includes like the nyseria and the strep and the H flu, and those ones seem to be very good, like the PCR test. But I was reading that the as you expand that panel more and more that the sensitivity specificity don't improve don't you know don't work as well so you might go then you might get some results that you're like oh oh what do i do with this and maybe it was just something common and you didn't even need that and now you have this like red herring or something like that. So that was my interpretation. I'm not sure if you see that happen, if that's a caution we should leave to the audience or maybe the source I read. That's right. Yeah, that's
3: right. You know, I do think of like, when I think of like these advanced diagnostics and the things that we use them for, like, you know, we, we often use these PCR panels so many times inappropriately in GI, right? And so if I was yeah. like, Can I get rid of a PCR panel? I would get rid of completely, make it disappear, GI-PCR. But I, when the the encephalitis and the meningitis Panel came out. I was thankful, and I would say, I would, I would say, many infectious disease docs are thankful because we see so many cases where we never figure out what's going on, and and you know, just like you described, like the person got antibiotics, or they you know, the LP was seven days late, or something like that. And so, adding to this huge unknown in the field of brain infections and spine infections, that was really a true, I think, a, a boon. So. You know, mm-hmm. while the sensitivity and specificity of those non big three that you talked about, that's again Strep pneumo, neisseria, and Haemophilus, those are usually the top three, and it is very good at detecting those. I think anything added to that Xbox is like helpful. And so I in overall I think it's helpful and it's nice mm-hmm. to have in many hospitals.
1: Okay. But as you said, your first round test, you gave us the bare minimum is like all the just the classic stuff that if we were doing uh, that, that most of us should know how to interpret and, yes, uh, or, totally. or you're going to tell us more, hopefully t- teach us more about how to interpret those things. And is that where we're going next with this Moni? Do we have, do you want to go through some potential profiles for Miss Hudson before we talk about the treatment and then we'll yeah. do the treatment, at, uh, next?
2: Yeah, I think that makes sense since we have been talking about the advanced diagnostics and all that stuff and then the bare minimum. Yeah. Got the LP, sent it off, got some studies backpile, and I kind of want to go through a couple different profiles and cool. talk through your thought process. So let's start with a patient who's got a low glucose, high protein, and neutrophilic predominance in the white blood cell count in the fluid analysis.
3: If if you were telling me this, you called ID and you're like, all right. I got this, here's the glucose and the protein. I'd be like, stop right there. (laughs) What is the white blood cell count, right? Like the most important thing for me, and, and this is probably just how I think about it, um, but the most important thing and what I always ask students and stuff and presence is like, what do you think is a normal white blood cell count? And the range will vary widely within a team. And really, what when you if you were to do an LP on on us right now, we should have zero to one white blood cells, right? So that's again, again, I said at the beginning that getting an LP is very helpful. And so if you have zero to one white blood cell count that it doesn't matter. Like the differential doesn't really matter. None of that other stuff matters. That's pretty normal. But if it's 200, 2000, you know, that changes things all like a bunch. So let's say, Moni, you're you're telling me about this person that it's about 100 or so white blood cells. That's got my, like definitely got my attention. Really anything above five white blood cells for me has got my attention. And you're saying it's a neutrophilic predominance. And so, you know, most most common causes of bacterial meningitis worldwide and in the US continue to be strep pneumo, neisseria meningitidis or you know also known as meningococcal meningitis and haemophilus and so those are the three things that would be on on my top of my differential you told me she was in her 40s so again you know we're always thinking about the patient And like what their risk factors might be. I don't think that she's immune compromised. So thinking of really those typical bacteria, if if the patient was much older or immunocompromised or very, very young, like a little baby, then I would be thinking about listeria or some other organisms as well.
2: I think that kind of breaks it down pretty simply. And so... Let's change it to a lymphocytic predominance and see what what that gets us. So high protein lymphocytic predominance in the white blood cell count and the the fluid.
3: This also gets me very excited because now I can tell you to stop the vague and the ampicillin and the subtriaxone and all of the things that have been started. Um, Again, why an LP is so high yield? Because just with that cell count and that diff. We're really able to change, you know, the differential quite a bit. Um, So if you're seeing, like, again, let's say it's about 20 white blood cells and a lymphocytic predominance, you, you don't know exactly what it is, but it would very rarely be those typical bacterial pathogens. You're already thinking it's something atypical. That differential is very wide. And that now we're going to have to start reaching into that second shelf maybe to see what else is going on. But now, again, depending on that white blood cell count, risk factors, we might be thinking about viral meningitis, fungal meningitis, tick borne, you know, TB. Like
1: there's the 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 differential could be really wide and includes aseptic meningitis as well. I, I wanted to ask about lactate as well I know I know that wasn't on the short list and I saw you you mentioned aseptic meningitis supposedly lactate levels tend to be higher in that than in bacterial meningitis that was something that I saw in a couple of the sources do you do you find that helpful clinically I find lactates are always I'm a little wary of lactates yeah, there has been like research on some of some of these other inflammatory markers
3: like lactate, procalcitonin, CRP, um, and it, you know I I usually don't ask for those. Sometimes the team will send those and I'll help interpret them, um, but I like to go to my go tos. Like you know what, if if my go tos are there, it's going to help me with the differential, and you know those other things are not as as sensitive
1: and specific or, or really helpful in thinking about the differential. Yeah. Okay. So. Nice, maybe a nice to have sometimes, but not, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be there. Yeah. Moni, what else are we going to put Miss Hudson through potentially with this uh, differential? And then we'll eventually settle on one and talk about what treatment we want to pursue. Uh,
2: so this last one is my favorite. Uh, normal, normal glucose, normal protein, neutrophilic predominance. So it's a little muddy. Yeah. Kind of confused. Please
3: help. <laughs> That's a tough one. Again, you know, I would be looking at the cell count, right? So, like, is this like a a 10? Is this like a 5,000, right? Like, so if it's a 5,000, my concern is crazy high. I'm still really concerned about a typical bacterial pathogen. But if it's low, Um, And it's like a stone-cold normal glucose, stone-cold normal protein. And we see these, you know, like people don't follow the medical books. They'll have weird CSF profiles. The things that I would be thinking about are things like syphilis, right? Um, Neurosyphilis is something that we see a lot. Um, And remember that there's some of these bugs that will early on be neutrophilic and then later can become um lymphocytic and those things involve include tb they can include some of the viral pathogens and so um it's not a it's not necessarily a reason to get a second lp but it can sometimes muddy the results just like you said
1: yeah i tend to get the patient with monia i'm not sure about you but i get the patient with 0 to 4 white blood cells and a glucose and protein that make no sense and probably it's because we're we're getting it and the person's been partially treated uh, and and maybe maybe we've partially sterilized or or treated them um but Moni, you get that too oh all the time and i'm
2: always super happy about it
3: <laughs> i will say like i think if it's like if it's like a florid i i i also get consulted on those so you guys will consult uh, id on those and i think you know even though, I, as I said, like each hour, each day that goes by that you haven't gotten the LP, the yield continues to go down. But if it's a florid bacterial meningitis, they're not going to have a stone cold one white blood cell in their LP. So right, yet again, right. it's still... You can at that point, pull off things, subtract, so, right, all of those things because that person has something going on, but it's not a typical bacterial meningitis.
1: Pyle, I wanted to ask in, in follow-up. So you gave us a lower cutoff of you said, more than five white blood cells, that sort of gets your piques your interest. Is there Are there higher number of cutoffs that make you think, oh, this is definitely bacterial or this is de- definitely like one diagnosis or another? Not as much.
3: It's, it's really, um, for me, it's really that lower number. And so if, if it's a lower number, my, my differential is wider, but really the higher it goes, it's, it's gonna be usually a more typical bacterial pathogen. Whereas if it's a lower number, let's say 5, 10, 15, 20, your differential is very wide at that moment because it could mm-hmm. be infectious. It actually could be not infectious and
1: you, you won't be able to tell just with that cell count. So these panel tests we were talking about, maybe they're more helpful there.
3: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and that's when you start thinking about, you know, fungal endemic stuff. Where do you live? You know, did that person travel? And, and using some of those other things to help you think about stuff too.
2: I think it's come up a couple of times in passing about aseptic meningitis. And so I'm kind of curious from the other parts, history and this stuff, what things do you sort of use to help you kind of discern that this might actually be more aseptic than anything else?
3: Yeah, man, that's hard, and and you know, it, I I definitely see why you guys are asking about this. Um, very difficult. That's you know, this is where you go into that second shelf because you, you it has to be almost a diagnosis of exclusion. You don't want to miss something else especially in this part of your body right um and so this is around the time that we start looking at you know what time of the year is it is it time for west nile has has that been reported around here is that something we need to think about um and and that would be the time where you do reach into that second shelf start sending off some of that viral stuff is this person immune compromised could they be at risk for something like a fungal meningitis um, so you know that's when you really want to start ruling out those other atypical causes, and if everything remains negative, and sometimes if you're lucky enough to have that history, oh you know, oh by the way, I took my cousin's back to him yesterday for you know an upper respiratory <laughs> infection. That's that's actually very helpful at that point. Uh, but I think asymptomatic meningitis, you know. Maybe maybe ID doesn't get consulted on it that much, but I would say we don't see it nearly as much as we see all of these other infectious types of encephalitis, or something like you know cancer causing a meningitis, or you know some of these other non-infectious things that aren't just an aseptic meningitis or it's a viral meningitis. The, those things are much more common.
1: Yeah, the differential the the differential gets broad, and that's where I I think usually we ask the question when should we Consult ID. I think most hospitalists would consult ID for any patient with meningitis yeah. or menin- meningoencephalitis. Um, it just see it's just too high risk.
3: No one would fault you at all. Yes, that is completely <laughs> <would> fine. <laughs> completely fine.
1: I would
2: hope. Very recently, the thought crossed my mind, so I definitely called. Probably sooner than I normally would have, but yeah.
1: So I think I, I mean to recap what we talked about with the testing. Our our first line. Cell count with differential, that's like what we're most interested in, you know, because that's really going to start to point us big time in one direction. And then the other stuff can kind of fine tune that. And so the classic bacterial meningitis is low glucose, high protein, and uh, elevated cell count, neutrophilic predominance. If there's a lymphocytic predominance, you said, then then you're telling people usually pull off some antibiotics this is probably yes. viral or or something else
3: exactly which is nice because at least at least they don't need like five ivs going into them which is good <laughs>
2: <laughs> and free this up is the such line. a tease
1: for treatment so <laughs> and then you said your your second line or kind of like your top shelf thing you usually you ask like, save some fluid uh, in the yeah. lab because we might want to run a second round of testing, and that's where these panel PCR tests can be helpful because we could do some of the more specialized and really broaden our differential if it's a lymphocytic predominance or if it's not like just a classic bacterial meningitis.
3: Exactly. and I think that that's something that I've really noticed in the different places that I've trained like I, I trained in San Antonio, we saw quite a bit of TB meningitis. And I've never seen that outside of Texas. Then I trained in Boston, and we saw a lot of Lyme, right? And then, you know, I haven't seen that as much in Michigan. And we see fungal meningitis here very often. And so I think, depending on where you are, um, that second shelf is going to be really different based on some of those endemic things that are going on around you.
1: Moni, anything else with the diagnostics that you think we should talk about or do you want to, I think we, maybe we go back to Miss Hudson and talk about what treatment we should start on her. I'll, I'll let you take it.
2: Yeah, I think that we've hit all the high points on diagnostics and really have a good, very thoughtful and simple way to break it down. So I think it's reasonable now that I've mentally hyperventilated, gotten the LP and sent off the studies. At the same time, I'm also thinking about treatment and so my problem is always do i send do i start everything i think the answer is probably yes but i'm kind of curious and then i also wonder about the antiviral piece but we can start back with just do i do i start everything and then the steroids question
3: oh yeah definitely that's that's a great question the steroids c- has been confusing i think over time um so again now this is again where like the risk factors and you know those things really matter also i think you know something that we something I think that would, you know, come up when you're thinking about it. But is this like a community acquired meningitis? Or did this person just have neurosurgery, you know, two weeks ago? Very, very different. So those things can really change your, like your empiric antibiotics. And then really important to remember that whatever antibiotics you're using must get through the blood brain barrier, right? And so that's, that's really important to remember. So I think that's kind of how I think about it. Did this person have a neurosurgical, like something going on, trauma to the head that would change kind of the etiology of these organisms? And then that becomes kind of where I'm more scared about things like MRSA and Pseudomonas. Or is this like a community acquired, which is, you know, really the more common and that's the patient that we're talking about right now. And that's when um, you can start kind of narrowing your, your antibiotics. And then again, are they really old? Are they really young? Those are the things we remember from like, you know, when we studied this when we were in med school. And it's totally okay to look this up, right? Totally okay to always look this up. But usually, vank and ceftriaxone are a good choice, right? And not because of Staph aureus. This is like the part that I think people don't remember. It's not because MRSA is causing like bacterial meningitis. It's because strep pneumo has become resistant over time. And so there's a possibility that it could be resistant to ceftriaxone. There's a, there's a possibility that you would need Vank for it. And if you were to only do VANC, you would be missing gram negatives. So, and ceftriaxone covers many of the potential organisms. So for that reason, Vank and ceftrioxone are a good go-to.
0: If you're listening to the Curbsiders, I'm willing to bet that you're the type of person who goes above and beyond, because if we're being honest with ourselves, listening to our podcast is probably a little bit like homework, and you probably already have a job on top of this. So all this is to say, I think you deserve a good night's sleep. And that's why we're thrilled to be sponsored in part by Birch Mattresses, which will help you get that good night's sleep. Birch makes organic, non-toxic mattresses made right here in America, and they are shipped straight to your door with no-contact delivery, free shipping, free returns, and a 100-night sleep trial. Birch mattresses are made here in America with just three materials sourced straight from nature, organic latex, New Zealand wool, and American steel springs. And they're certified organic. They donate 1% of all sales to the National Forest Foundation, which plants trees in American forests. They sent me a mattress I have never slept better, and as someone who cherishes sleep more than almost anything else on this planet, That's saying a lot. So if you're looking for a new mattress, check out birchliving.com slash curb and check it out. They have a 25-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for if you don't love it, but we're sure that you will. Birch is giving $200 off all mattresses and two free eco-rest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb. That's $200 off all mattress orders and two free eco-rest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb.
2: Okay. You kind of talked about risk factors for something like listeria where you might add something else. So I think it'd be helpful to, I don't know, Matt, what do you think? Because there's like, there's so many scenarios we could go through. Yeah. I I think by age. Yeah.
1: I mean, she's, she's under 50. I saw 50 as the cutoff where you start to worry about listeria, but was there, is there anything that makes you add the ampicillin coverage to a person under 50 if uh, thinking about listeria or, or any other bugs?
3: I think, you know, like, it it really is immunocompromised as well, and and list, okay. it, listeria is, is thank, thankfully you know rare enough. But I will say that it again. This is where those blood cultures are so important because often when someone has listeria meningitis, they will also have the bacteremia, listeriosis, um, and so hopefully you're going to have yield from your blood cultures at quickly as well as, well, you know, Listeria, well, I should say, I wish it was quickly, but Listeria will take longer to grow than, you know, some of this other stuff like strep. So. You want to have as much of a yield as possible. And then it's important to remember, and people may not remember this, listeria, like the cephalosporins don't work. Um, and that's why we use ampicillin. And so that is why you're on five antibiotics when you're thinking about bacterial meningitis. Ampicillin is specifically for listeriosis. Um, and then vanc and will really cover that wide
1: array of other organisms. No, that, that's great. So, and you mentioned... If the person, so she's coming in, we think this, if if this is bacterial meningitis, it's community acquired as far as we know, no head trauma, no uh, recent surgical procedure in the CNS. And, uh, but if she had a recent surgical procedure or she had some sort of head trauma or something, how would that change that initial three, you mentioned the three antibiotics potentially? Yeah, that's a great question. So
3: when we, and that is someone, I think, you know, as, as things change in our in all of our hospitals we'll continue to see probably more healthcare associated meningitis right it's going to be something that we're all going to see definitely in id we see this all the time so this is like actually a common id board question because again you're thinking about what are the organisms in an operating room that you're worried about and those are mrsa and pseudomonas right and what are antibiotics that will cross the blood brain barrier that will treat MRSA and Pseudomonas, which are different than what we're thinking about in community acquired meningitis. And so, Vank, here, there's your go to. Vank is going to be covering the MRSA and crosses the blood brain barrier. And you have a couple of options that I'll often quiz my team. You know, I'll say there's two cephalosporins that cover Pseudomonas, and most people can remember cefepime, but other people can't remember ceftazidine. Um, And so those are two good options. And then if you were to uncover that this person actually has MSSA and that grows, you know, in in perhaps in a blood culture or in the CSF, you you know, many times we use cefazolin, but nafcillin is actually probably better for CSF. So that would be a go-to go home, you know, take take home point that nafcillin is a good choice here for an MSSA meningitis or like brain infection. And your empiric regimen is probably going to be something like vanccefepime or vancceftazidib. If you want to like impress me, you're going to use ceftazidib because I'm going to be like, oh my gosh, no one <laughs> ever remembers about
1: ceftazidib. <laughs> We want to impress you, so we probably <laughs> probably will. Our listeners they want to impress you.
2: Yeah, any of them that end up rounding with you one day. So, um.
1: okay, so we'll get to, <laughs> to summarize the antibiotics first. Uh, and there's uh, for if it's a primary, we think this is a primary like community acquired, um, non-immunocompromised patient. Um, you know, at, at least vanc and ceftriaxone. Mm-hmm. If they're older or immunocompromised, we might add ampicillin to that to cover listeria. Yeah. And then if they've had like head trauma or uh, like especially a recent surgery and we're trying to cover hospital-acquired bugs, then that would be VANC and cefepime or if we want to impress use ceftazidine. <laughs> exactly. And then once we find out whether this is MSSA or MRSA, we might switch to nafcillin. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We, we mentioned... Um, it, maybe this is the point for this question. We mentioned like sterilizing the CSF. Is there, maybe you don't have a good answer, maybe no one does. How long do we think it is before like the antibiotics are given before the CSF becomes unreadable? Is there. Oh, is it you know, hours, days?
3: It, oh, you know, it's definitely not hours. Oh, psh, okay. that thing's gonna be like floored for a while, right? Um, <laughs> it's definitely like days, um, and and depending on the infection and the load, it, it could be longer than that. And and that's why the utility of repeat LPs is usually not there unless that person is doing worse. You think you never grew something, you know, you're worried that you're missing something that that is the time that you would do a repeat LP. And so that's one of the reasons that we don't have the exact answer to that. But it's, I do think about it similar to, uh, you know, I know many of, many of us have treated, um, bad SBP and you'll do like a repeat para only sometimes only to see if it's getting better or worse. It it would be similar if you did a repeat LP. If your white blood cell count is going up, that is bad. so that's how I would think about that
1: okay very cool and then I think we should talk about uh, steroids as well because that's that's oh, confusing yes. to me yes uh, I I thought maybe and I'm also confused why some places they seem to work in some in the developed world but not the yeah. uh, you know, not lower income countries I'm not sure if you do, but can you speak to like who should get the steroids and yeah. when should they get the steroids definitely
3: yeah this is really an important point so um, you know, it's it's really hard. You can't tell when someone's walking in what bug they have, right? Um, but and that's the hard part, right? And so what what we know is that in high-income countries, per the studies that have been done right now and according to the most recent Cochrane review, in high-income countries, steroids are helpful if they are given before or with antibiotics for strep pneumo in adults. And may prevent deafness in kids with Haemophilus. So really, there seem to be benefits for strep pneumo and Haemophilus. And those are two of the most three common types of bacterial meningitis. And so no one is going to fault you if someone comes in with a community-acquired or, you know, kind of like this community-acquired pick and you give them steroids before or with that first dose of antibiotics, they're probably not going to be helpful if you give them afterwards, okay? So that's something to remember. And then I think it's important to remember that once, hopefully you're getting that LP, hopefully you're getting that information. And if it's not strep pneumo, you should stop the steroids. So that's, that's you know, I think there's been a lot of, like, muddled ways... And I'm not sure that everyone gets that. Um, and, and I also find it strange that, you know, the studies have, there have been nine studies done in kind of middle or low income countries, and they haven't shown that benefit. The thought process is that maybe people present earlier, in, you know, when you have uh, easier access to care, that you present much earlier in your process with meningitis, and that might have something to do with it. So that's kind of that international perspective on steroids
1: yeah very it was interesting i was I was trying to think through like how would that work and, and the the papers I read didn't really speculate um so I figured I'd just ask you rather than like look it up myself so <laughs> <you. laughs> <laughs> Moni do you see people do you see people also throwing like antivirals in the mix when someone comes in initially like and I, I wanted to know is that common practice or does that just happen to be where i work
2: uh I will say that I don't See it too much where I work right now, but I remember in training I did it a lot when I was spe- specifically in the ICU. Uh, that was something that my attendings frequently had me do. So actually, Pile, I'm I think we're both kind of curious what the
3: practice yeah. should
2: be. For the the antiviral that's situation, a, that's a really good question.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think I definitely have seen it everywhere. Right? Again, this is why like I get consulted persons on like twenty antifungals. I'm like, please, why? Um, I get it, right? I and and after seeing the sequelae of HSV meningitis and encephalitis, I I would say it's fine to to go ahead and start it early. But you have to listen to your results, right? Once they come back, you have to be willing to change. And I think another thing that can be fearsome for people is that, you know, apparently an early HSV PCR can be negative, right? But that, that again, you, you have your cell count there, you have your differential. So that's only one piece of your puzzle. So if you, I think, you know, if you had a lymphocytic predominance, don't have another answer, your initial HSV PCR is negative, that's that's a good reason to perhaps repeat, keep that antiviral going. But that is usually not the case. And as soon as you have that initial cell count and diff back, you're going to be able to make some decisions about your antivirals and your antibacterials.
1: And hopefully we'll have your help uh, interpreting.
3: Yes,
2: totally. So you really do hang your hat on uh, the neutrophilic and lymphocytic predominance in terms of helping guide stopping antibiotics. Yeah.
3: I mean, almost more than more than so many other kind of, you know, so many times we're in that gray zone where, where we as ID will be like, I don't know, this could be this or this. But in meningitis, I find it incredibly helpful to help direct management. Okay, great. Ms Hudson,
2: her cultures come back positive for pneumococcal infection. So this is the point where obviously we we can stop some stuff, but we can also start thinking long term. So I always am curious, how long am I supposed to keep people and antibiotics and the steroids in this situation?
3: Yeah, great question. So, hopefully at this point you've I'm sure you've consulted your local infectious disease team and we're going to be happy to help with the duration and all of this. And You know, this is this is kind of I hate to say like an easier case um because strep pneumo, we you know, we know what to do. We got this, right? You want to know if they had a bacteremia or not, right? That could potentially change things. Some of the cases that I've seen have been a horrible otitis media leading into meningitis, leading into an osteomyelitis, So you really want to see, is this just a meningitis? Is it also a meningitis and a bacteremia? Is it also an ear infection and an osteo? So, so many times there might be more than one thing going around. That can really affect duration. But if this is just a, you know, good old simple strep pneumo meningitis, it's about 10 to 14 days. Um, and we'll, we'll help you decide, you know, the final duration on that. And um, the 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 steroids. And I, I could be wrong, but I think they're about four days. And they're again, they're really helpful early on um, to try to help decrease that inflammation and the strep just going crazy. And so that's when it's really important is early on.
1: And from what I was looking up, it looked like the longest. There's varying dur- durations based on the bacteria, and you, you'll just have to look that up. It seemed like gram negative rods would be like the gram negative of infection seemed like the longest, like a three-week duration or something like that.
3: Exactly. That's right. And, you know, Matt, in antibiotic stewardship in general, we're we're continuing to do so many of these trials. and, And for many years, we had just been doing the same thing, right? You know, like endocarditis is six weeks osteomyelitis is six weeks and so we're beginning to have more and more information in other disease states we haven't gotten there in meningitis yet Um, but things like strep pneumobacteremia we you know sometimes we have oral options so i think that potentially depending on um, future work could be could be a future target for antibiotic stewardship research to see if we could shorten some of these if we could go to orals earlier some of those things
1: yeah it's been really cool to see how all the the treatment durations were just sort of pushing the envelope uh, over the past decade uh, that I've been on in practice here.
2: I was literally about to say the same exact thing, Matt. It's like it's getting <laughs> shorter and shorter, so um, <laughs> all right. Ms Hudson has completed her iV antibiotics. She's discharged, and she came back to her PCP. And she's still having some generalized neurologic issues that have really impacted her ability to go back to work as an IT specialist at Chick-fil-A. So this is the part that I want to be able to talk to my patients about, which is anticipatory guidance in terms of what to expect when they're recovering from this infection.
3: Yeah, man, this is this is tough. And, you know, this is for all types of meningitis. Um, you know, it could include things like HSV. It definitely includes typical, like, bacterial meningitis. Almost up to forty percent of people could have some sort of cognitive dysfunction after this. I, I I don't think that we talk about this enough, or that we you know maybe like know about this really as a field. Neurology probably knows a lot more about this. Um, a lot of it has to do with again that acute flare. What happens in that that you know when that bacteria is able to cut through and get into that that space, what kind of horrible things it can cause. And this is why before childhood vaccines, we saw so much, you know, deafness and neurologic complications with meningitis in children. Um, and so I would say that in general, the burden of meningitis in the world and definitely in places like America has gone down so much because of vaccines. And I know that you wanted to hit this high point as well. It, it definitely is. It's just like such a such an amazing consequence of vaccines and childhood vaccines that we've seen meningitis go down, not just in ch- children, but in adults as well. That's really been incredible. And I also want to do a shout out to antibody antibiotics and antibiotic stewardship here because, you know, more mortality was 95% from bacterial meningitis before antibiotics. And if we don't use our antibiotics wisely, you know, we could get back there way sooner than, you know, we would ever want to. And so I think while morbidity and mortality are, are, can be quite devastating for meningitis or encephalitis, we have made major headway in, in the
1: prevalence of these conditions in the last few decades. This has been really fantastic. And I, I think we're at a point where we can get take-home points so we can let you get back to your family. And, and thank you so much for all your time. It's been really great. Hanging out tonight and talking about meningitis, a very scary topic, but you're you're making me feel better. So thank you, awesome, good. yeah. I
3: mean, i I totally feel you on it being scary. But I think if you if you know
1: what to get, you can make things better right away, which is good, so take home points that like maybe give the audience like two or three favorite take home points that you think you'd want them to remember from this talk,
3: sure. yeah. I think i will I will start with just again that very first take home point, and that is that, if you think you may need to get an LP, there's a little voice, if it's my voice from this podcast telling you <laughs> maybe you should get an LP, um, you know, you probably should get that LP. It's it's going to help whether it's whether it's negative, you know, that's gonna really help change your differential and, and if it's positive, depending on that cell count. Again, get those basic things, that's gonna be really helpful. And then the second take-home point I think is when you see someone with meningitis thinking about how to triage, you know, what what happens and when, I think blood cultures, antibiotics, LP, right? And if they have risk factors for a CT, then get that CT. But that doesn't have
1: to happen on every patient that you see. Well, this has been so fantastic. Any resources uh, or anything in general that you'd like to plug or uh, point the audience towards?
3: Yeah, definitely. I think, you know got it got a shout out to my homies infectious disease society of america <laughs> those guidelines they haven't been updated in a while since 04 right That's, yeah it's been a while wow. but i got to say i read through them and m- much of what they're saying is still rings true that that duration you know partly because of the research and, and lack of research that we've had those durations are still there so i would say have those there you don't have to remember all this on your own there's a lot of really good resources out there and consult your id team we're always happy to help with this
1: this has been another episode of the curbsiders bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole Yummy. (laughs) I was waiting for it. Get your show notes at Curbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus twice each month, you'll get the Curbsiders Digest with great practice-changing updates on articles, guidelines, news, and internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can also email us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Reminder that this and most episodes are available through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for CME. And I wanted to give a special thanks to Dr. Moni, Got Money, Amin for writing and producing this episode and to our whole team. The Curbsiders is produced and edited by the team at PodPaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media and Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And with all that, Moni, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto.
2: And I've been Dr. Moni Got Money Amir. Thank you and good night.